I think in most areas of life, we put a lot of uh, emphasis on the day-to-day immediacies of life, and we often measure how life is going, perhaps even year by year. Uh, but some, one of my wise mentors, mentors said that it's more important to gauge a 10-year period of time, whether it's in the life of a church or personal growth or in the life of a business, and uh, I was thinking about that today, and I thought of J.R.R. Tolkien. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the author, the British author and a scholar. Remember, he is the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, we think that somebody just sits down and writes books like that overnight. Well, listen to his story. He did not initially set out to write fantasy novels and to create an entire world that he called Middle-Earth. And for you Tolkien fanatics, you know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> I knew there was at least one here. And, uh, but Tolkien, he first ventured into his brilliant writing career when he read the f- phrase, that phrase, Middle Earth, came out of an old English manuscript that he had discovered, and it inspired a poem for him, and that was in 1914 when he was only 22 years old. Well, three years later, in 1917, he wrote The Fall of Gondolin, which was the first story of his fantasy works. And then, 13 years later, this is 1930, he began telling his children a bedtime story about the strange and funny creature called The Hobbit. Seven years later, his book titled The Hobbit was published. The publisher immediately asked Tolkien for a sequel. And, of course, 12 years later... In 1949, he completed the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but that wasn't done yet. The trilogy was not published until five years later in 1954. So in other words, from the time he first saw that phrase, Middle Earth, to the time of his masterpiece about Middle Earth, it took Tolkien 40 years of creative effort. And so we live in an instant society, and we want things done now, if not yesterday, don't we? And yet in the Christian life, it is a journey and it is a process in which decades go by if we are blessed with a long life. And so we are on a pilgrimage, we are on a journey, but we don't know when our personal journey will come to completion and consummation. Uh, But we do know this, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are on this road trip, if you will, on a journey. And it's uh, exhilarating at times, adventurous at times, very adverse at times and very painful at other times, and we recognize that that is part of the process. It has a starting point and a terminus. Uh, We are looking forward to seeing Jesus Christ face to face as we continue in this life. Remember, we've talked about the whole issue, this package that we call salvation, that is called salvation in Scripture. It has a beginning point. For me, it was when I was 28 years old. Uh, when I believed in Jesus for everlasting life, and he saved me from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. I look forward to glorification where he will save me from the very presence of sin. But this middle part is where we're all living. I look around, and you all look pretty much alive to me. Okay, I don't know about awake, but you're alive. And uh, so this middle part called sanctification is where we are being saved from the very power of sin, and it's a process, it's progressive sanctification. Positionally, we are perfectly sanctified in Jesus Christ, but practically, or in our experience, it is an issue of growth and journey as we travel along the road of following Jesus Christ. 
uh, as we come to Psalm 132, we started here last week, and it is the longest of the Psalm of Ascents. It's at least twice as long as any other of the Psalm of Ascents. And so we didn't finish it last week, and so we are going to finish it today, Lord willing, as James reminds us to do. But remember that these Psalms of Ascent, beginning in Psalm 120 and completing in Psalm 134, are a collection of Hebrew poetry that was probably put to music. And the pilgrims, they were commanded to go up to Jerusalem three times a year in the book of Exodus. God commanded them to go up and worship at the Temple Mount or at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And they would go these three times per year. They would, <clears throat> excuse me, go. And uh, as they went up there, they would worship together. They would sing these songs as they went along. And they would travel from wherever they came in the, in the Middle East there in Israel up to Jerusalem these three times. And, of course, it was a way to teach their children and other people the word, God's word as they memorized it because they each didn't have a Bible in their hand. Uh, they had been taught. It's an oral tradition. They had been taught, and they memorized these psalms. And then the rabbis and their teachers would teach them, and they would then teach their, in turn teach their children as they went up to Jerusalem. And what better way to learn than to sing these songs if I knew the tune to this one, I'd have you sing it, but I don't. So we will just read it today. But Psalm 132 through 134, these last three psalms are really about arrival at the destination. They're about a completion of the journey, and it's about this arrival. And Psalm 132 talks about the Lord with us and their longing, the Jewish longing that they would be in the very presence of God and want Psalm 133, which we will see next week, perhaps, perfect fellowship among God's people. And then the final one, Psalm 134, is God's people serving in his sanctuary. And so we need to remind ourselves that these songs were particularly written for Israel, for the Jewish people, but we can learn from these things. Sometimes we recognize that uh, it's hard to apply God's word in different places, but this psalm seems very directed towards the Temple Mount, towards arrival in Jerusalem, towards God's presence, towards the promises to David. And yet there are at least four things we can learn from this psalm. Remember Psalm 132, they're crying out. It says in verse 1, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all of his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And so they are looking back to the promises God made to David. And it's called the Davidic Covenant. You can find it in, <clears throat> excuse me, in First Sam, Second Samuel, excuse me, chapter 7. Let me just read a portion of that. This is called the Davidic Covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It is a promise. And there are conditional covenants in Scripture as well as unconditional covenants. Uh, when we go clear back to Genesis, you've probably heard of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised Abraham and his descendants uh, <clears throat> land, seed, and a blessing. In other words, there would, they would be a blessing to the world. There would be land that would be given to them. And there would be a seed. There would be the hope of a Messiah coming to rescue his people. Well, this is the Davidic covenant, and this is the line through David's line that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born into. And so we come to verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, where it says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, he's speaking to David, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And, of course, he's speaking of Solomon here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16 is the covenant with David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so that is the background promise of God, the covenant in which the people that are going up to worship are remembering. Now, it's difficult to date some of the Psalms. Some of them are pretty easy to date, but this one is a little more difficult. Some think it was written during Solomon's reign after the Ark of the Covenant. The very symbol of the presence of God was brought up to Jerusalem. And others think, and I tend to lean towards a a time after the exile to Babylon. So they're looking back 400 years to David's reign and still remembering the promises that God has made for them and for the nation Israel, that there would be a king, a Davidic king, reigning in the throne of Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is for his lineage, but it doesn't mean that every person that followed David, in fact, Jehoiachin was the last one that was deported into Babylon, and he was the last in the line of the Davidic kings who actually reigned in Jerusalem. And then Jesus Christ, of course, comes from the reign, as we know from excuse me, as we know from the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, we know that Jesus is a direct descendant of David, of King David, and he is the one who is called the son of David. He is the one who is the expected Messiah, the son, the Messiah to reign over them. So Psalm 132 provided these pilgrims with great hope. Now this Psalm can be divided primarily into two major chunks, verses 1 through 10 and verses 11 through 18. And it's a prayer. It really is a prayer. Verses 1 through 10 is a prayer of the people. As they sing out these words, they're praying to God, and they plead with him, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. And so they're asking a number of things here. And then God answers them in verses 11 through 18. And so, in a sense, this is a psalm about the future, especially God's answer about the reigning king, the Davidic king, who we know with 2020 hindsight and looking back through scripture, we know is Jesus Christ. But still, it is a prophetic sign that's not fully fulfilled yet. Not fully fulfilled yet. And so, just like the Old Testament prophets, like the writer, whoever the writer of this psalm was, They were looking forward with great expectation of the imminency of the coming of the Messiah, that he would be here right away. And so they are looking forward to that. But what they don't see, because remember in the New Testament, the church is called a mystery. A mystery is not a murder mystery, but it's a previously unrevealed truth that God has set into order. And so they didn't see what is called the church age, which began at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, in, in probably about 50 AD or 33, 34 AD, and continues now in our time. They didn't see this thing. It's like us looking up at the mountains. We see the near peak. We see a far peak, but we don't see the valley in between. And that is exactly what the, the, the prophets, uh, as they prophesied, We're looking at the two peaks, Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. And they thought they would blend them together, push them. They didn't see the valley in between called the church age. And so in this this psalm, we'll do a little review here because we covered the first half of it last week. But uh, we can learn at least four lessons from Psalm 132 here as believers in the church today. 
uh, we can understand that residing in God's preeminence in verses 1 through 5, where they say, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber in my eyelids until I find a place of the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David had this heart's desire to build a permanent uh, uh, temple for God. Remember, Mount Zion is the symbol of God's presence with Israel. Later on, it's called a footstool, God's footstool of God in heaven, and Mount Zion is his place. And so the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of God's very presence, and David accomplished bringing that back out of captivity. Remember, the Philistines had captured it, and then they'd given it back because it didn't help them a bit. And uh, then it was not in Jerusalem, and David brought it up to Jerusalem. If you remember that story, he even when he brought it in, he danced. There was so much celebration that the very symbol of the presence of God, the mercy seat of God, was returned to Mount Zion. So as we come to this, we can see in verses 1 through 5 that he had a heart's desire. He wanted God preeminent in his life. I asked the question last week, is God simply prominent or preeminent in your life? And there is a difference. God and Jesus Christ can be prominent. We can read the Bible. We can go to church. But yet, is he really preeminent to all things in our lives? I think of the New Testament book of 1 John, and 1 John is about the fellowship with Jesus Christ. It is about abiding with Christ and being in close fellowship. I've used the example of the fact that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the your DNA is set, the salvation DNA is set because of Jesus Christ and your belief in him for everlasting life. But we can be out of fellowship with God. We can drift aimlessly away, and our sin can separate us in the sense of our fellowship, but not in our relationship. Our relationship is secure. But is God preeminent in our life? David is saying here, we obviously know that David did sleep. He did go to his house. This is a metaphor for the fact of his focus on his desire to see the temple built. Of course, he was not allowed to because he was a man of blood, but Solomon was the one who built the temple. And so residing in the preeminence of God, is he preeminent in our lives? And it's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to me personally in my day-to-day life about where is God in this place? Who's on the throne of my heart? Is it my desires or is it God that, that controls and says what I have to pay attention to? And so because of that, when Jesus Christ is preeminent, then our response will be a life of worship. Now, we call this the worship hour. and We collect, gather together. It's a corporate uh, thing where we gather together, sing songs of worship to God, listen to the teaching of his word. But when we go away from here, it doesn't mean that worship, your worship, has ended. I think of some of the most special times of worship I've had have been out uh, on my own and something God just opens my eyes to something amazing that he has done or something about his creation that just staggers me or something about someone's story about how Jesus has rescued them from eternal damnation. And I worship And you think about Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, Job had everything taken away from him. And uh, he basically, uh, you know, lost his, his health, his wealth, and his family. And yet, what did he do? It says in Job that he worshiped. 
and there's no, no indicator that there was a, a worship team around him or anything, but he worshiped. He basically knelt his knees and he worshiped God, gave him his worth. So response of joyful worship in 6 through 9. Look at those verses. Behold, we heard of it in, I always get this wrong, Epatha. You know, it just my mouth doesn't work. We found it in the field of Jar. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your dwell resting place, you and the ark of your strength, mentioning the ark of the covenant. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy for the sake of David, your servant. Do not turn away from the face of your anointed. So there is a response of worship. Uh, Worship always responds, true worship in spirit and truth responds to the truth of who and what God is. And how do we know that? We know it from his word. And we can have emotional feelings and we can have an experience that we, we say is worship. And yet if it doesn't, isn't part of a response of the truth of who and what God is, we can question whether or not it is true worship in spirit and in truth. And so reside in God's preeminence, and that will result in a response of joyful worship. The people are praying and calling out, God, we want to worship you. We want to be joyful. They call about the priests being clothed in righteousness, godly ones singing for joy. And they talk about David as the anointed one. Remember, David was chosen as the king after Saul, a very unlikely choice. And yet God used the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. And so David became uh, the king because of God's choice, his anointing of David for that role. So worship is a response to the character of God and in anticipation of his promise of fulfillment. And so remember God's promises. And this is where we'll pick up from last week in verses 10 through 12. Look at those verses. Again, for the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body. I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I teach them, their sons shall also sit upon your throne forever. And so we see the promise of this anointed one, David, and then the promise of a Davidic line. And Psalm 89 has a number of references to the Davidic promise, this promise that David would have an heir that would reign in Psalm 89, 35, and 36, God says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. We need to remember that back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God warns Israel that if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. The Bible is full of warnings like that. It is a warning to Israel about obedience and discipline if they disobey. And so there's obedience and disobedience that God addresses there. And we know that in David's line, after Solomon, the, the, the nation split, it divided. And as I said, Je- Jeconiah, the last Davidic king who was taken into captivity, he was not a good guy. And so God's promise that there would be an eternal line doesn't mean that everyone would be promised that but that there will be a Davidic line, and we know Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. We need to remember God's promises here that he is going to make sure that everything occurs, and we are the recipients of God keeping his promise because Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem 2,100 years ago, and he is the Savior. And so God, by keeping his promises, did send the Messiah in his time, in his way, 
and Jesus Christ is our Savior. And so when we remember his promises, we can rely on his blessings, rely on God's blessings. Verses 13 through 18, again, this is God speaking, answering the prayer of the people. For the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her need with bread. Her priests also will clothe, I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. In verses 13 through 16, God chooses his dwelling place. And of course, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the Jewish people, that was his choice at that time. He was uh, residing. It was symbolic of his presence with his people. Well, in the church age, you and I, we're called the church, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And where is his dwelling place? Well, it says that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us, and we are all over the world. It's not located to a city, to a mountain, but we are all over the world. Believers are all over, and this is his dwelling place. He dwells in our lives. Choice dwelling place. In verses 15, well, by the way, uh, in verse 13 and 14, It's an answer to prayer found in verse 7 and 8, where it says, Let us go to his dwelling place and worship at his footstool, arise and go to his resting place. And so here is God's answer. He has chosen it. It will be his habitation. He will dwell there. He will desire that, that community that he is part of. And so remember God's promises. Rely on his blessings, this choice dwelling place. And then verses 15 and 16, he's answering this prayer. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. There's a picture here of the bread of life. Jesus Christ fulfills this. It's not literal bread, but it's the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. And the priests were blessed with salvation. In verse 16, I will clothe with salvation. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9, we are called a royal priesthood. There is the whole concept in the New Testament of the believer priest. We don't need to go through a man priest to get to God. Each one of us as believers in Christ are a priest in him, and we can go directly to God at any time. We don't need to go to Jerusalem, or we don't need to go to a priest in some kind of a church and confess and plead with him to plead with God, but we can go directly to him. The priesthood of believer, choice blessings and satisfaction. And then verses 17 and 18 is the fulfillment that God is telling us of the messianic anticipation or the anticipation of the Messiah. It says there, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown will shine. Underline these three words, the horn, the lamp, and the crown. The horn, the lamp, and the crown. What is that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, a horn was a representative, a symbol of power, a symbol of power. It meant military strength and victory, the all-powerful one. I have a little bit of a, a student of history of World War II because my dad was involved and his brother and my uncles and everybody that I knew in that generation served during World War II. But I was reading about uh, a specific campaign in the Solomon Islands, uh, I think I'm pronouncing the island right, the Peleliu campaign. And uh, the Japanese had 11,000 soldiers on that island. 
when the U.S. invaded, there were 47,000 Marines and some Army personnel. And even though it was a struggle, we prevailed. But the picture is, is that the power is overwhelming. This horn, this power, this military streak, God's power is overwhelming. There is nothing that will stand against it. An animal horn symbolized strength and vigor, and it's sometimes used to powerful, powerful rulers in Scripture in Daniel 7, 24. And it says that this horn will grow, it will sprout is the word there. And we think of Jesus' entry into the world as a babe in a manger. And the second one, the second picture is a lamp, a light unto the world. And this was a picture in the tabernacle of a burning lamp that gave light. And it signified the continuation of the Davidic dynasty, that there will be one who fulfills perfectly the promise of this Messiah. And, of course, it's Jesus Christ. And in John eight twelve, he said, I am the light of the world and a light bringing uh, beauty and, and salvation to the darkness. The final one is a crown, and this is the anointed one of God. And here what he says in the end of verse 17, for mine anointed, notice he said, you're anointed back in verse 10, speaking of David. Well, here he's anticipating Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment. He is the anointed one. And David and his descendants will be triumphant over his enemies. When we put it all together, the horn, the lamp, and the crown, we get the symbols for power, illumination, holy authority. And Jesus Christ fulfilled all three and is fulfilling all three. And it's a striking fulfillment. Remember, he is our great high priest, but he is also reigning as supreme one in heaven. And so what is accomplished here? You know, the people were praying out, and ask God to come to his resting place, be with them, be together with them. They asked for the righteousness for the priests, but God promised to clothe the priests in salvation, which is the greater concept. The people asked that the saints might sing for joy, and God promises that they will, we will sing for joy forever. We will sing for joy forever. And this greater future fulfillment, remember he's looking forward to the uh, fulfillment of the messianic kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom in scripture. We see that in revelations that there is a coming 1000 year kingdom where Jesus Christ will physically reign in Jerusalem from Mount Zion. We're still looking forward to that, to this perfect kingdom that is established by God. And so we look forward to that. Remember when Jesus came, well, before him, John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ, the last of the Old Testament prophets, really, in form, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, early in his ministry, gave the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason they were preaching that message is because Jesus Christ came as the promised Messiah. He was offering them this millennial kingdom right then that he would set it up if they would accept him. And we know that by the, the middle of his ministry, he was rejected by the leadership of Israel and all of his miracles were attributed to Satan. That's when he turned away and started focusing on the disciples because he knew that they were establishing, going to establish the church age. And so Jesus Christ was calling upon, and John the baptizer, you know, and John the Baptist, John the immerser, uh, he, he was preaching the same message in the nine months that he ministered because they were calling to that generation to change your minds, repent, change your minds about God because the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that it was authentic. But they rejected him, we know that. And so we recognize that Jesus Christ had a future plan. 
And so he accomplished this. So the future thing involved three things. The establishment of God's throne in Jerusalem, verses 13 through 14. Part of that promise involves the earthly throne of David, but that he would establish it, but that he would have David's descendants, and primarily Jesus Christ, who would fulfill that promise. The kingdom of the world is the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, Revelation 11.15. And we are looking forward to that day. Secondly, God's blessing on his people, both physically and spiritually. Uh, God's blessing on his people involves material and ample provision, salvation of the priest, joy for the people. And we look forward, and that's the millennial kingdom because it is not totally in place yet. We look forward to Christ's second coming, the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. These last two verses describe how God will cause the horn to grow for David. A powerful ruler will achieve all that God has promised. He will have a crown. He will be the lamp, the light, and he will be resplendent. He is the Messiah. Well, let me just say that uh, in very tumultuous political times, and I don't know about you, but I dread the 2020 election. I already am, but uh, that's just part of our democracy and our republic, and so uh, we live through it. But uh, just let me just give you a little warning here. Nowadays, a lot of people, Christians included, look to the government to solve all their problems. And it it's, seems to be pretty prevalent. But even a freely elected government like ours will never solve our problems. Uh, his crown and his alone will be the one. If we look to the government, uh, it's really a religion of statism where we worship the government. And we have a great government. Like I think it was Churchill who said, what is the worst form of government? And they said democracy except for all the others. And uh, so uh, it's an imperfect system, but yet uh, we are blessed in that sense. Back in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president at a meeting of the National Association of Evangelicals, President Ronald Reagan spoke to an audience, and the audience responded by applauding wildly. And then uh, Charles Colson came up to the stage and reminded up to the rostrum and reminded everyone, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. And that's something to remember, especially in this election year. But it will arrive with Jesus in his time, and we who are on a pilgrimage of this Christian faith need to keep our eyes fixed upon him. Yes, we are thankful for our country, but yet Jesus Christ is our ultimate king and leader. And so at present, we do not see everything that is subject to him, but he will make all things subject to him. In Hebrews 2, 8, and 9, when we see Jesus, that will be enough. That will be enough. And we look to Jesus, we look forward to the goal set before us, to win a prize for the upward call of Christ heavenward, just like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.14. So remember, we need to, the lessons we learn are reside in God's preeminence. Is he preeminent in your life? That's the beginning place. And then response of joyful worship, wherever we find ourselves, lifestyle worship, if you will. Remember God's promises. Look them up. Every time you find a promise uh, directed to the New Testament church, record that. Remember it. Rely upon God's blessings that he will bless you. And we have a future and a hope. And we are on this journey and it will come to consummation and completion to a terminus with a new heavens and a new earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. 
Thank you for the psalmist who wrote down these words at your direction, the Holy Spirit's inspiration. We thank you, Lord, for the people, the ancient people of Israel who would traverse up to Jerusalem on these times and sing these psalms, this Hebrew poetry, and yet, Lord, we know it's very special to them, and yet, Lord, it is special to us because we can learn and glean uh, the truth of your word, and you will apply it as you see fit, and I thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are an active, living God. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. Would you please stand as we shout for joy?